And now let's, let's dive into God's word. 1 Peter chapter 3, just a single verse this morning, but I trust we'll find it's, it's full of content for us. And as we come, let's remember this is God's word. It comes to us with authority and also with grace, with power, and also with joy. It introduces to us a life of joy in following God. And that's my my heart this morning, that we would enjoy the clear teaching of God's words. Let's read together God's word, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Lord, please bless the preaching of your word. Uh, perhaps you've heard the story of Robert McGilkin, who was the president of Columbia Bible College before the turn of last century. Robert was married to Muriel, he proposed on Valentine's Day in 1948, and they married in August of that year. They raised six children, served as missionaries before returning to take up the role of seminary president. But in 1978, after 30 years of marriage, she began to show signs of mental degeneration. Eventually, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. As she declined, it became abundantly clear that she was desperately dependent on her husband. As one Family Life article put it, when he was away from her, she became distressed and would often walk the half mile to his office several times a day to look for him. Once Robertson was helping take off her shoes and discovered her feet were bloody from walking. Robertson eventually confronted the painful reality that he could not maintain his presidency in all of its strenuous labors and provide the significant care his wife needed. So he made the difficult decision to resign from that substantial position, surely a lifelong dream. But as he put it in his own words, recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time that I am away from her. And it is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now, full time. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, he said, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me, her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. Now, Peter's goal, if I can put it this way, is to make a church full of Robertson McGilkins. Not all of us, of course, will face the supreme test that he faced, but we all share his same calling. Every husband, 
should be ambitious to imitate his example. To say, I don't have to care for her, I get to. It is an honor to care for this person. That is what Peter is aiming for in writing to husbands scattered across this region. He is wanting to call them away from the kind of natural selfishness that every person, let alone men, every man faces and experiences and drives him towards a kind of other-mindedness, a kind of particular care and love for his wife. He is calling these husbands to a Christian view of marriage. We might put it this way. We are called, Peter would say as husbands, we are called to care for our wives with honor in the fear of the Lord. We are called to care for our wives with honor in the fear of the Lord. I want to say a quick word to children. If you're here and you're not a grown-up yet, let me say a word to you. I was talking to a friend last week, and, and, and they were expressing that one of their children said, well, this isn't a message about me. This is about mommies. <laughs> I wanted to say, look, one, one day all of you will be, probably many of you, will be married. And so I want you to put this message in your mind like a treasure, and I want you to hold it there for when you, especially if you're a, a young boy, I want you to hold it there for the time when you have a wife. And I know it seems like it's an eternity away, but one day it will come. And I also want you to hold it there so that you can encourage your daddy whenever you see him taking care of your mommy. All right, so I'm talking to you. If you're, if you're not a grown-up yet and you're young, I'm talking to you right now. I want you to use this message, tuck it away as a treasure for when you grow up and you get married, but also I want you to use it to encourage your daddy whenever he treats your mommy this way, okay? Is it a deal? All right, good. All right, Peter breaks up this command into, into three sections. I, I promise there really are three sections. It's not just a three-point message. Uh, three sections of this verse. Two commands and then one very serious motivation. I trust you'll see those two commands and the motivation as we walk through it. But let's, let's walk through this one at a time, always holding in front of us that calling that I would summarize. We are called to care for our wives with honor in the fear of the Lord. To be like this man Robertson in Every, every daily challenge and year after year until the Lord should take us home. So this first section I would label gentle care. It's this first command, this first description of what a husband should be. Gentle care, I would caption it. Likewise husbands, Peter says. And that likewise is somewhat uh, interesting because this is the first type of person that he speaks to in this overall section that is not called to be subjected, to be submissive to a person in authority over them. So the likewise is used somewhat differently here apparently because in all these previous sections, under the citizens under the government, the servants under their masters, wives under their husbands, they're all told to be subject or be submissive. So the likewise here must be speaking to the broader point that a Christian is called to apply their Christianity apply their gospel identity in tangible ways in every area of their life. Likewise, like all these other roles, your Christianity must make a difference in your daily life. Your gospel identity, your calling in God's word must make a difference in the roles of your life. Christianity is not just a Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday religion, although it shouldn't be less than that. 
but it should press into the everyday roles. It makes a difference in how you husband. It makes a difference in how you're a citizen. It makes a difference in how you work for your boss. It makes a difference in how you are a child. It, it makes a difference. You should look differently because you belong to Jesus Christ. So Peter says, likewise, husbands, I've got a word for you. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The Greek word for live with communicates a togetherness, a unity of life. And obviously, it forbids an actual or a functional separation without biblical cause. It's worth stating in this day and age for a man to abandon his family, to fail to provide for them, is said in the Bible to be worse than being an unbeliever. To separate from a family without biblical cause is worse than being a bad husband. It is defying God himself. So to live with needs to be taken on its own terms. You are called to live with your wife. And the phrase in an understanding way is literally in the Greek according to knowledge. According to knowledge. Measuring up to knowledge. It speaks of a husband knowing his wife well. Not ignorant of what God has made her and made her to be. His life is to measure up to that knowledge. To that knowledge. But... Before we can go any further, we have to do a little more Greek work. So I'm going to ask you to pay a little bit of attention here with some technical stuff we have to look at. First of all, I want you to look down at your Bibles and notice the phrase, notice the phrase here, the weaker vessel. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And, and actually in the Greek, the next phrase is the weaker vessel, as the weaker vessel. So this is one of the rare moments that I respectfully disagree with the English word order of the ESV. I love the ESV. I think it's a fantastic, accurate translation, but this is a rare moment where I might have to respectfully disagree. The actual Greek word order here, I think, changes a bit the meaning from how you might read this in English. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, and the next phrase is, as the weaker vessel. I think the NASB more accurately depicts this order. Let me read it to you. The NASB translates this. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. So the point here is that the weak vessel reference is probably more a reference to what the husband is to know or to live in understanding of and not as much a motive for honoring her. We'll get to the honoring and the motive for that in a second. But this, this phrasing is important because it gives a point, it gives a direction, a particular emphasis on what that husband is to know and to live up to in understanding and providing a, an understanding way of life toward his wife. In particular, we might use the phrase, in particular, since she is the weaker vessel. Now, that's the second exegetical point we have to look at. What does this phrase, the weaker vessel, mean that he's to particularly know as he lives with her? The word vessel is used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to the body. And I think that is clearly its meaning here. Of course, Peter cannot mean that the wife is intellectually or spiritually inferior. That would contradict other clear teaching in God's word. And Peter is also definitely not implying that since the wife has a weaker body, she is somehow less valuable. That is a thinking of our culture. It is not the thinking of the scriptures. Our culture prizes, even worships human strength. But the Bible, frankly, is not impressed with human strength. The Bible is essentially dismissive of anyone who boasts 
in human strength. Peter's point here is simply that God has chosen to give most wives a body that is less muscular and that has a smaller bone structure than their husbands. And because of God's design of the female body to bear children, women are forced to deal with other physical vulnerabilities that men do not. Vulnerabilities that make possible the incredible miracle of human life, but also create ongoing burdens for every woman. In that sense, as every woman can attest, there are a number of ways in which she bears the burden of a physically weaker vessel. No comment on value whatsoever, just a, an assignment from the Lord that in many ways is a difficult one. All right, so we've done our Greek work. Let's put this first command all together. A godly husband lives with his wife in a way that measures up to a true knowledge of her and in particular bears in mind her physical vulnerabilities. His treatment of her measures up to who she truly is, who God has made her. He is not independent from her as if she were a mere colleague or business partner, certainly not um, some kind of mere servant, but he gladly binds up her life with his and places her physical well-being squarely on his own shoulders. If I can borrow from Paul's words to husbands in Ephesians 5, which says a number of other things about marriage as well. I'm sure Peter wouldn't mind if I do this. Husbands are to treat their wives as if they were their own bodies, which is to say that her pain should be treated as if it was our pain. Her fatigue as if it were ours. Her vulnerabilities, as if they were ours. Her hungry, her hunger is our hunger. Her thirst is our thirst. Any physical need she has should not be a source, should not be a source of annoyance, but taken as a divine calling. God has called your life, husbands, to measure up to a true knowledge of your wife, including the knowledge that God himself, God himself, chose to give her this particular physical body that she has and that he has entrusted the care of her and in particular of that physical body to you. Now there's a lot of other things the Bible says about love for your wives and washing them with the water of the word and so forth. But Peter is concerned and not surprisingly in this culture, he is concerned with making it very clear that Living with one's wife, and in particular, guarding, protecting, and providing for her physically, is the unique and delightful calling of a godly husband. Husbands, this this gives a God-inspired nobility to our labor to provide for our wives. It should convict us of any annoyance or impatience with them when they are feeling weak or in pain. It should motivate our compassion when they face the normal up and down temptations of a woman's physical experience. It should bring us regularly back to the truth that God made her precisely the way that she is and entrusted her to us for protection, provision, and care. And our way of life with her should measure up to that knowledge about her So, brothers, let us study God's word about our wives and study our wives in light of God's word. There is no place in 1 Peter 3, 7 for a boorish, harsh, demanding husband. God's purpose for every husband 
is to care for his wife with gentle strength. The implication, since we were given, in many cases, a stronger physical frame is that God gave us that frame for a reason, that is to protect and provide for the one who was entrusted with the difficult task of having a weaker physical frame. Her body does things that you cannot do, and therefore your body should do things that hers should not have to do. Now, obviously, there may be exceptional cases in which a husband faces sickness, disease, illness, weakness. Obviously, this is not asking a husband to do what he is physically incapable of doing. But in every case, a husband should do all that he can to use the strength God has given him to guard, protect, and provide for his wife. He works hard for her provision. He gets up at the interrupting noise at night to ensure her protection. He carries her when she is weary. He studies her to understand her unique pains and burdens. He labors to know that all of her needs are met and to mitigate them to the best of his ability by the grace of God. He is not to be as independent from her as possible, but to live with her. He is not to treat her according to his own selfish instincts, but to care for her with gentle strength. It should be true of a husband, what Christ said of himself, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May the husband bring protection, provision, peace, and healing to his wife at his own cost for his whole life. Let me say just a brief word to wives, as I gave a brief word to husbands last week. Just an implication, I think, for wives here. Since the husband's job is to live with you in a, a kind of knowing, gentle, caring way, it seems to me that your task is to make this job as delightful as possible. The Bible does not typically commend Christians who make the tasks of other Christians harder. A wife should not make it hard for her husband to live with her by a complaining or demanding attitude the Proverbs warn in three different places that life with a quarrelsome wife is a bleary task. Proverbs 21.9 says, It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 27.15 says, A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. The fact that a woman's body is normally weaker in some ways does not mean that she is weak in all ways. Peter uses the comparative term here. He doesn't say she is weak. He says she is weaker. And obviously that in a very narrow, uh, narrow meaning there. She is weaker. She's not weak in all ways. This passage is not an excuse for complaining or laziness in a wife. I would caution you against some of the teaching that is out there in the self-care movement. Ladies, be, be careful. Women were made by God for God and for his glory and been given incredible capacity to work hard for the glory of the Lord. It is one thing to enjoy the rest God gives. It is another to be self-focused and demanding as a way of life. This is not an excuse for complaining or laziness, just as the passage above is not an excuse for selfishness or arrogance in a husband. A wife should not exaggerate her need. She should not exaggerate her needs in self-pity 
and she should not minimize her need in self-sufficiency. And isn't it tempting for anyone being served by someone else to do one in one moment and another in another moment? I have desperate needs, but I don't want you to act like their needs. Both are expressions of pride. She should not demand service from her husband or manipulate him by guilt, but she should gladly work hard as her strength allows and gladly invite his care whenever she feels weak. I love this quote that pulls all of this together in a, in a delightful phrase by Martin Luther, of all people. Martin Luther said, Let the wife make her husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. Young man, just a quick word to you. Develop the skill of asking questions and working hard. If you want to one day live with your wives in an understanding way and to provide for her so that she does not have to provide for herself. Develop the skill of asking questions and working hard. If you're seven years old, you can begin to develop the skill of finding out about another person. Practice it at the dinner table this week. Let me speak to you if you're seven, eight, or even five and six years old. You can develop a skill of learning how to ask good questions, to focus the conversation on someone else. That's a skill you will need if you are to care for your wife in an understanding way. You cannot live with a wife in an understanding way if you never seek to understand her. Also develop the skill of working hard, because you cannot provide for a wife the way you should if you don't know how to work hard. Young ladies, let me say to you, do not welcome the attention of any young man who doesn't work hard and who never asks thoughtful questions. Do not welcome the attention of a young man who doesn't work hard, and if all he works hard to do is to be around you, he is not working hard. You don't need a date to the movies. You need a husband who will lay down his life to provide for you, protect you, and know you. Gentle care. It's the first command given here, but, but, but Peter goes on. He has more to say. He doesn't just say this very practical thing. He has more to say about what it means to be a godly husband, a husband like, like Robertson McGilkin, a, a husband that brings honor to the Lord, that glorifies God in his way of life. The second command I would label gospel honor. So gentle care, maybe that first category. Secondly, gospel honor. Now again, we've, we've done a little bit of surgery here. We've, we've moved this English phrase out of the way to get it back to the way I think the Greek uh, in, in, intends it. So let's just read it the way I think it should be read. Showing honor to the woman, and then it jumps immediately to the motivation, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. I actually think that makes a lot of sense. Show honor to the woman as heirs with you of the grace of life. Show honor to the woman as heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, Christian wives and husbands have both received the full inheritance of eternal life that comes by the grace of God. The grace of life is our inheritance, it says. The grace of life, the grace that we do not deserve that issues forth in eternal life, life from God. Now, for a Christian, this is an untold honor. Unless we 
lose sight of how valuable this is, let's remind ourselves this morning, shall we? Let's remind ourselves of how valuable those precious words are. An heir of the grace of life. Let's just enjoy that for a minute, shall we? That the heir of the grace of life is what Peter says Christian wives and Christian husbands are. At the outset of this letter, Peter reminded his dear Christian friends that God has given in Christ an inheritance. A heavenly inheritance that cannot fade. And this is not because of their natural birthright, but exclusively through the grace of God. Now normally, to receive an inheritance, you have to belong to a particular family. You're a son or a daughter of of someone with a certain kind of wealth. But in our case, our natural family inheritance was that of Adam. And he didn't pass on anything but his own debt. And biblically, debt transfers to the next generation. Adam's debt transferred to us, and we followed in his likeness anyway. And so the only inheritance we had was an inheritance of judgment and death. That was our family inheritance. Contrary to popular belief, one does not deserve heaven simply by avoiding great evil. One deserves hell for being a son of Adam and a sinner. That is the family inheritance of men and women. If you are born into this world, you are born into a devastatingly bad inheritance. An inheritance worse than any earthly difficulty or challenge you can face. An inheritance that is devastatingly horrific because it means the confrontation with God at the end of your life, separation from God for the rest of eternal life, and the punishment of God for your sins in this life. We were heirs of judgment. We have no birthright to heaven, contrary to a popular Western way of thinking. That that would be as insane as a person saying, well, I, I fully expect the Queen of England to make me the Prince Regent when she dies. And you would ask the person, well, on what basis? I, I didn't know you were of royal blood. Well, I, I'm not. I didn't know you were English. I'm not. Does she know you? She doesn't. I just fully expect that she will. Or imagine a person who says, well, I fully expect Jeff Bezos to just give me Amazon when he dies. Do you know him? I don't. Do you agree with him on many things? I don't. Has he ever met you? He doesn't. Are you related? No. I just expect he's going to give it to me. That's the way many Americans think about heaven. And actually, it's worse than that. Because it's not that we were strangers to God. We were at enmity with God. It's more like a criminal expecting the person they stole from to give them everything upon their death. It's like a person who has murdered someone expecting a family member to bless them with their wealth. How ridiculous to assume you go to heaven, God's own heaven, having defied him in life and being born into the race that lived in rebellion against him. Heaven is not a natural inheritance at all. The only way that we can be heirs of the grace of life is because it is grace. It is the grace of God to sinners that Christian wives, Christian husbands, Christian children can have any expectation and let alone confidence of being in heaven when they die. Heirs of grace, grace that favor we have not earned It was given to us as a gift. 
It's life instead of death. And he just spoke earlier about how this life came to be given to us. It's because verse 24 of chapter 2 says, He, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, the tree of curse, the tree of Adam, the tree of devastating judgment. That inheritance was fully delivered to Christ so that his inheritance of life eternally and grace, the favor of God, could be given to us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, instead of receiving the enmity of God and the hopelessness of hell, we receive the honor of being God's children, assigned an eternal inheritance of life, forever freed from the curse of death. And this is the good news of the Bible. Let me just say, if you're here and you're interested in Christianity or you're growing up in a Christian home and you don't know if you're going to heaven when you die, let me invite you to believe in Jesus Christ. He offers to you, and I can say confidently by the testimony of God's word, that I have the, the authority to give you this from him as his authoritative invitation. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. If you turn from your sins, if you trust in him, instead of facing God as judge, who will punish you eternally when you die, you will face God as Father, who will welcome you eternally when you die. You will not get into heaven because your dad was a Christian, your mom was a Christian, they had a good Christian marriage, or you came to Redemption Hill Church for 400 Sundays in a row before you went to college. That is not going to get you into heaven. You're not going to go to heaven because you're nicer than your neighbors or because you've avoided certain illegal sins. You're not going to get to heaven because you've tried to be a nice husband or a nice wife. You're not going to get to heaven... Because you've tried to be better than some people you've heard of online. You are only going to have life if you receive God's grace. And you are only going to receive God's grace if you believe that Jesus died for your sins. By the grace of God, God himself offers to you, if you are not a believer, grace favor in the face of judgment, hope in the face of hopelessness, and inheritance in the face of death. So believe. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now back to husbands. What does all this have to do with husbands? Well, when a husband looks at his Christian wife, he should see a woman who has been saved by that salvation. A woman who has been chosen of God, ransomed by Christ, given favor from on high, and promised a heavenly inheritance. This is the woman you live with. And so Peter says, honor Show honor to your wives. Show honor to them as fellow heirs of the grace of life. When you look at her, you see someone that Christ died for, that God chose, that is indwelt by the Spirit, that has received the favor of heaven, and is headed towards a heavenly inheritance. This should motivate overwhelming honor of her. 
Look, the, the wrong response to being both saved in a Christian marriage is taking Christianity for granted. Well, since I'm a Christian, what's so special about you being a Christian? The right response is, since I'm a Christian, I understand how amazing that is, and I appreciate how much honor I should bestow on you as a recipient of the grace of God. Show honor, Peter says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, there's a couple of implications, I think, here for husbands. That let's just drill a little bit deeper. This means a husband does not have a greater spiritual value or access to God than his wife. Some teaching on headship and husbandly authority, I think, implies or even states that this is the case. Peter explicitly rejects that understanding. A husband does not have greater spiritual value or greater access to God than his wife. A husband is not a priest of his home. I think that's a very unhelpful phrase that some teachers use. He is not a priest of his home. I understand what's, what's attempting uh, to be said there, that there's a certain responsibility spiritually and so forth, but, but priests mediate between God and people, and a husband does not. It's confusing at, at best. Husband is not a priest of his home. He's not a mediator between his wife and God. She does not receive salvation through him. She doesn't pray through him. He doesn't have a greater claim on the spirit of God or on biblical maturity than she does. So if, if, if somehow you've come across a thinking that that's what it really means to be the head of your home, that you have a certain kind of priestly mediating role, let, let, let me relieve you of that burden. There is only one priest for the Christian wife, and his name is Jesus Christ. Second implication, husbands must prioritize reminding his wife of her gospel identity. Husbands, we have to prioritize this. Wives are just people. And just like every other human person, we tend to neglect and forget what it means that Christ died for our sins. We, we tend to try to, to be Christians in affirmation, but functional legalists in our everyday living. So we need to show them the honor of reminding them that they have the grace of life. That, that should provoke us, and it certainly should motivate us to be more aware of that identity than of their identity as a sinner, because sometimes we're tempted to be more aware of their sin than of their salvation. And if, if we're that way, then we are certainly going to project that onto them. But sometimes they are more aware of their sin than of their salvation. And so showing them honor at the very least, it means reminding them, honey, you're, you're saved by the grace of God. I, I know you're disappointed in this area of your life, but let me encourage you. God has saved you. There's, there's grace. You're forgiven. One very practical application of this, very practical. A husband should rejoice to forgive his wife when she sins against him. Affectionately, eagerly, quickly. Not slowly, reluctantly. Affectionately, eagerly, quickly. Showing honor. She, she's received the grace of God. So she had better receive your grace too. Let no husband hold his wife's sins over her head. Or punish her with 
distance, separation, anger. Isn't this our temptation, brothers? Am I the only one that's tempted in that way? Surely not. Surely we share this temptation to to punish and manipulate by silence, by distance, by withholding affection at times. But she's an heir of the grace of life. How, How dare we withhold the honor of our forgiveness if she's received God's forgiveness? Let the wife have confidence that she will receive abundant, affectionate forgiveness when she sins against her husband. And let us make it our task to ensure that she's in touch with this gospel identity as often as we can. I love how Charles Spurgeon opened a letter. This is just a letter, so let's be motivated. This is a letter that he wrote to his wife. Here's his opening greeting. (laughs) Dear purchase of a Savior's blood, you are to me a Savior's gift And my heart is full to overflowing with the thought of such continued goodness. I don't know what your texts look like, but um, (laughs) hey dot 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 doesn't really measure up to dear purchase of a Savior's blood. You don't have to talk like a Victorian, but I, I do think there's some motivation here of how can we, how can we find ways in, in modern language of reinforcing her gospel identity? Is it, is it a note? Is it just a, a scripture verse, an encouragement, a quote that you can find? Look, Google is terrible for a lot of things, but it's great at finding quotes, it doesn't even take a lot of work. Find a quote that is reasonably verifiable and it talks about her gospel identity and send it to her. Another brief word to wives on this point. If a husband should honor his wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life, then surely a wife should honor her husband for the same reason. <laughs> Whatever his weaknesses or limitations, he also is a citizen of heaven a recipient of grace, and for that reason, she also should make it a priority to remind him of his gospel identity. There's there's some some strands of American evangelicalism historically where the the wife actually was seen as the more as the more spiritual one and, and perhaps even with greater access to God. Now perhaps it was just factually true that she she sought to obey God more often than her husband, and she followed him with greater passion and zeal, and if so, may she appropriately receive encouragement. But, but it is important that a wife not look down on her husband if his strengths are different than her strengths. You might think of a wife, for example, who is, is very strong, perhaps, in the spiritual disciplines and a husband who is very strong in practical servanthood, but he does it for the glory of God, let that wife not look down on her husband. It is by your works that you will be known. And most importantly, he is an heir of the grace of life. Let there be no condescension, no manipulation, no condemnation from husband to wife or from wife to husband. This is a blood-bought child of heaven. 
That's the person that we're talking to late at night. That's the person we're greeting in the morning. That's the person that we're waiting for when they're late. That's the person that we're talking to about something they've forgotten. That's the person that we're responding to when they're struggling. They are an heir of the grace of life. And that identity should shape our honor of them. Husbands, gentle care, honor, and Peter gives a final serious motivation. I would label this section unhindered prayers. Unhindered prayers. Look at this remarkable final phrase. So that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. The husband should treat his wife with this kind of understanding, care, and gospel honor so that his prayers may not be hindered. Now this, this is incredible. P- Peter is saying that there is a connection between the way men treat their wives and the progress of their prayers. It could not be more serious, in other words. There could not be a more, a more serious importance to the way in which you treat your wife than what's provided here. Your very relationship with God is hindered in some way if there is neglect of or a failure to honor one's wife. Now, Peter doesn't specify whether trouble in their marriage will create a practical barrier to prayers or whether the hardness of a man's heart will disincline him to pray or whether God will just supernaturally limit the effectiveness of his prayers. I'm inclined to think that it may be all three, certainly the the last one, where where God is is not going to be inclined to to listen to one who is not a listener in any particular way if he, if he continues steadfastly in that hardness in treatment of his wife. We might think of the way Jesus reasoned about the topic of forgiveness. A person who is unwilling to forgive, not just struggling with unforgiveness, but unwilling to forgive, can have no confidence that their heavenly Father will forgive them. Well, I think in a similar way, the person who is not understanding and gentle towards his wife should not have confidence that God will turn around and be gentle towards him. If he continues in that defiance, God is not in the business of continually blessing hypocrites. So let a husband consider if he is showing dishonor to an heir of grace, does he expect that God will endlessly respond to his prayers? If he is refusing to listen with tender, gentle care, does he then turn around and expect God to be quick in response to him? God will not be mocked. What one sows, one will Read. There seems to be a, a, a similar kind of thinking here in this passage. Does it mean that our treatment of our wives removes our salvation or somehow eliminates God's affection for us or is the unforgivable sin? No, it just means that God is able to bring discipline into the life of disobedient husbands. God is able to bring divine discipline into the lives of disobedient husbands, ungentle husbands. 
dishonoring husbands. God is very able to bring discipline into their life. And the discipline in view here is a, a discipline related to their prayers. And how terrifying that should be for every husband. How motivating that should be to be gentle in every conflict. To be listening in every conversation. To be honoring in every opportunity because, because the husband lives under the gaze of God himself. And positively, this is phrased positively so that your prayers may not be hindered. It is God's intention that a Christian should have unhindered prayers. That the mark of the godly husband will be a, a, a joyful experience in prayer, an unhindered nature of prayer. That's God's intention for them. And isn't that good news? Husbands, God wants to give you unhindered prayers. God, God, that's, that should be taken for granted. God desires your prayers to be unhindered, un, unbroken, with no obstacles. God desires that you should know when you pray, he is listening, he is responding, he is answering in grace and not in wrath. He, he wants to give you unhindered prayers, so don't, don't tempt his discipline. Because his desire towards you is good, it's favorable, it's gracious. His desire is to do you good. Sometimes I'll, I'll speak to one of my children in a difficult moment, I'll say, look, my desire, is to bless you. My desire is to give this to you. Don't sin in such a way that I, I can't continue to give you this blessing. I can't bless you if you rebel in this way. But I want to bless you. And that's the heart of God in this passage. He, is, he has sent his son to open up the way for sinners to come into his presence, to pray at his throne of grace, to, to appeal for his mercy and his, his forgiveness and his love and his power to be at work in our lives and through us. And that is his desire. And so he says to husbands, look, don't mistreat your wife. Because if you were to do that eventually, I, I cannot continue to, to bless you in some of those ways that I want to bless you. Your prayers will be hindered. This is not an angry threat. It is, it is a loving warning and a reminder that by the grace of God, our prayers need not be hindered. A godly husband should not expect to see unhindered progress in prayer if he is faithful in care and honor of his life. Let me say one other thing. If unhindered prayer doesn't bother you at all, that should bother you more than anything in this passage. If what God views as a very sober warning and motivation isn't sober or a warning for you, then you have a deeper problem spiritually than your marriage. Because God has made you to be in fellowship with himself. He has made us to be dependent on him, to be praying and and living in constant dependence on God. If unhindered prayers are an indifference then let's make that the first point of repentance. Lord, make me care about my prayers so that I care about those things that could hinder my prayers. What is God's heart in this passage? His heart is that these creatures he created who became wives would be protected, provided for, watched over with gentle strength, 
would be honored. That is his heart in this passage. His heart is that there be somewhere in this world men that were given a certain kind of physical strength to be his representatives in caring for his daughters. And so he has tasked those men with this responsibility. He has called to them and said, I have, I have entrusted something to you. I have entrusted something to you, and it is, a, it is a task worth your greatest creativity, intentionality, gentleness, dependence on my strength. It is, a, it is a task that I entrust to you, and if one thing should motivate your prayer life, gentlemen, it should be this, the task of caring for a woman by the grace of God. This is the task entrusted to you, husbands. And a friend of a husband who is a single currently should take it upon their shoulders to encourage their friend in this way. A wife of a husband should take it on her shoulders to encourage a husband at every attempt to move in this direction. Because God, God wants women well cared for. Because he loves them and he has called them in Christ. And he has given you the task of guarding, providing, living with them in an understanding way and honoring them. They should have their own personal provider, protector, and honor guard at all times, in all ways. Muriel McGilkin began to degenerate in 1978. She did not die until 2003. What do you think that man's prayer life was like? And what do you think she will say about him when they both stand before the Lord. Let's make whatever she says about him our ambition by the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning aware of our great need and insufficiency as men and we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for, for every act and pattern of selfishness and you would cause us to be honor guards for our wives. You would cause us to be those who live according to the knowledge you have given to us about them with a particular concern for their well-being. Lord, you would forgive us for every occasion of failing to do that and you would motivate us to live differently. And Lord, thank you also that we do this, Lord, not to earn our way into your favor, but because you've made us heirs of the grace of life 
And you've made them heirs of the grace of life. Lord, cause us to reflect that kind of joy and celebration in our everyday roles. Lord, may our rights and desires and preferences in this life not rule us, but may we be defined by you as our rock and our redeemer. May that shape the way we treat everyone in our lives. Lord, turn our lives and our hearts right now again towards that joyful celebration. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. You have given us the grace of life, and we find our identity in you.